0: You're listening to this Sunday's sermon from Hope Church RVA. To find out more about Hope, plan your next visit, or support the work we're doing in Richmond and beyond, visit HopeChurchRVA.com. So, two weeks ago, I started our series and I said this teaching in John 13 through 17 is all about the long game. It's Jesus' departing teaching words to his disciples. And as he is teaching, he's giving them instructions about how to live lives of meaning, lives that matter, lives that get the long game right. That's tough to do in a culture like ours. Our culture is focused on the short game. It's focused on urgencies over important things. It's focused on immediacy over long-lasting impact. And so here we get this incredible and beautiful picture into Jesus' teaching his disciples. And that includes any of us who call him Lord and Savior about how to live lives of meaning with a perspective on the long game. So this is a section that is very intimate, all of this section 13 through 17. Two weeks ago, we started with the washing of the disciples' feet. Each one of these chapters, Jesus moves toward deeper intimacy with the Father. It's like step by step by step, coming closer to God's heart. And this life is to be sincere and honest and vulnerable and true. And this is what Jesus is teaching the disciples and teaching us. Today, the particular focal point is finding our way home. Let me pray, if I could, while we get into this. Our Father, God in heaven, you're speaking to us, whispering to us in all the different places where each of our lives have us. And Lord, if we come into your presence and we give you the truth of our inner worlds, we open them to you with all of their confusions and contortions and anxieties and uncertainties and unrest. And in the midst of all of this, Jesus, we hear you saying, come home. Come home to the Father. Come home to me. Come home to love. Come home to your true identity. Come home to what your heart longs for. So Lord, speak to us this morning in this journey home. We pray this in your name. Amen. John 14, 1 through 14, Jesus said, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place that I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing, and they'll do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Don't let your hearts be troubled. It's the opening sentence of this whole teaching. The context is that Jesus is trying to comfort these guys. He's been talking to them about the fact that his life is coming to an end. He's going to be crucified on a cross, and they're disturbed and worried and upset. They've sacrificed a lot to follow him. They've given up their lives. Many of them have left their families and their work, and they've devoted themselves to following him through all the ups and downs of the experiences, all the villages and towns and in Jerusalem and all the neighboring areas, and now they're worried. Have we hitched our wagon to the wrong thing? Have we completely done the wrong thing with the direction of our lives? If you're going to die, then has this just all been a big waste of time? They're nervous about whether they're on the right path. They're nervous about whether Jesus is the real deal. And Jesus is comforting them with this teaching. That's really important that we know that. It's the context, and the context is that he's comforting them. Okay, in the midst of this teaching, he says, In my Father's house are many rooms, and I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I'm going there to prepare a place for you, I will come back to take you to be with me where I am. And then Thomas says, we don't even know where you're going. How do we know? And then Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Those are words of comfort. The first time I ever read them, they were words of disturbance. The first time I ever read them, they were words of offense. The first time I ever read them, they were words that made me angry and raised a lot of hackles. I was in college and I was reading the Bible for the very first time in my life and I'm beginning to read in the Gospel of John. And when I came to this little section of teaching, the greatest barrier in my spiritual search rose up in John 14, six. This statement where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me was the greatest hurdle in my spiritual searching. I rejected it offhand, I thought it was arrogant, I thought it was exclusionary, and I didn't buy it. And so in my own journey, spiritually, trying to figure out what's true, what about religion, what about different religions, what about people all over the world, I remember that part of my challenge was, I had said, I'm not going to accept Christianity just because it's essentially an American cultural religion. I'm not going to accept it just because it's what's in the air, or because it's what my parents taught me, or what was passed down in American heritage, so to speak, if it's that doesn't legitimize it sufficiently for me. I need to really get at the questions of whether it's true or not. I was thinking, I want the truth, I want reason, I want intellectually sound religion that works well for people who are thinking rigorously. And then I began to reflect on the fact that if I was thinking that Christianity was an American cultural religion... I began to realize that what you think is a function of how you think, and how you think is a cultural function. What you think is, is a function of how you think, and how you think has been taught to you in our culture. You realize this, right? We all tend to think the playing field is very level and our own intellectual positioning is entirely objective. It's not. The way we think has been taught to us by cultural assumptions and norms and observations and viewpoints about life. So if I'm going to question Christianity for being cultural, I have to question my way of questioning because my way of questioning is also cultural. And so this created a new stir for me, a challenging place. Eben Alexander is a neurologist, a brain surgeon, who had an experience where he had meningitis, and he was thought to be dead for seven days. He had an experience that he went on to write about. Before he had this experience, Eben Alexander rejected anything spiritual. He rejected religion. It was outside of his parameters of science and the possibilities of the physical and the scientific realm. Here's what he says. I was blind, but now I see, now took on a new meaning as I understood just how blind to the full nature of the spiritual universe we are on earth, especially people like I had been, who had believed that matter was the core reality and that all else, thought, consciousness, ideas, emotions, spirit, were simply productions of it. Eben Alexander goes on to write in his book, about how his experience revealed to him that the way he thought and saw the world was the result of his intellectual training which had numerous cultural assumptions underneath it and his experience challenged the assumptions of what he had always thought and would have rigorously held on to to being true. Okay, so the setting is the upper room. Jesus is teaching the guys, I'm going to my father's house to prepare a place for you. Notice that he starts with his father's house, but then quickly everything becomes the father himself. He says, I'm going to my father's house, but then he says, the way to the father. Home is moving increasingly intimate. Yes, we have the picture of our father's house in heaven, but more than that, it's to the father himself. And so in this setting, Jesus is giving them this comfort. And you've heard me say it before, but I'm not sure we can overstate it. He's using the language of Jewish weddings and Jewish marriage. In a Jewish marriage, a young man would prepare a place where he and his bride would then go live. And while they were betrothed or sort of like our engagement, he would be working to prepare the place. And when it was ready, he would then come to receive his bride so they would go live there forever. The language would have been inextricably the language of marriage and the disciples would have known it. So when Jesus says, I'm going to my father's house to prepare a place for you, he's talking about the relational language of marriage. Now here's where a lot of us are going to get hung up on this. When we have this marriage analogy and that Jesus is teaching us that our relationship with God is like a marriage... We're prone to getting it backwards. We're going to start thinking about our relationship with God. And if you're married, you're going to filter it through everything you've experienced in marriage. As though God is like our marriages, but the analogy is the reverse. The point is marriage is a tiny little picture of our relationship with God. Now the next thing, let's be honest, you're going to get hung up on, is intimacy and sexuality. That's not the nature of the teaching. The point of the teaching has to do with the fact that this relationship is a relationship that is faithful, it's sacrificial, it's a relationship of union that never ends. That's the point. That's the nature of God's relationship with us. It's faithful, it's sacrificial, it's a union that never ends. Marriage as we know it is a little sacramental-like picture of this much, much, much fuller thing that is this relationship with God. So Jesus is using this marriage analogy. In other words, it's not that our relationship with God is like marriage. It's that marriage is a tiny little snippet of what our relationship with God is like. The point Jesus is making is, I'm trying to help you find your way home forever to love. The truth of the way home is what he's clarifying. The truth of the way to get there is what he's clarifying. Now truth becomes a profound question. When Jesus was being tried by Pontius Pilate, in the trial in John 18, we read this. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. How about that statement right there? Jesus saying, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, retorted Pilate? It's a good question. It's an important question. What I've come to learn is that truth is the reality of how things are regardless of what I think they are. We all wrestle with the questions of truth. For example, for many of us, questions of ourselves have these huge implications of truth. Most of us have a hard time seeing ourselves truthfully. And it requires other people to speak the truth to us about the nature of who we are and how they find us to be. And we might say, no, 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 that's wrong. And someone else is like, you're telling me I'm wrong in how I find you to be? Truth is the way things are, regardless of what I think they are. And Jesus is teaching us the truth of the way home. It's a comfort kind of teaching. Years ago, my wife Elizabeth and I were out in a place in West Texas, and we were on a retreat for a period of time, and we went out for an afternoon hike one afternoon in a pretty rugged countryside with a lot of scrub oaks and dry terrain and canyons and mountainous kinds of environments. And it was getting late in the afternoon, and we had gone on this several mile hike, and we began to realize that we were lost. So no big deal. I like the outdoors. I'm used to the outdoors. I like to think of myself as being resourceful. So in the early going, like we had this, I think we've been here before. We're not on the right path any longer. To me, that was sort of recreational. That's fun. We'll figure it out. It's going to be kind of fun. Well, we sort of kept trying to look and look and look to find our path, and we weren't finding it. And lo and behold, the sun's starting to get lower in the sky. We were in a place where the weather was kind of like desert conditions, where it gets really cold at night. And so it was shifting from a little bit of a recreational hide-and-seek experience of trying to find the path to something that was starting to feel just a little more daunting. So we kept walking and walking, and I'm trying to keep my spirits up, like, oh, no problem, we're going to find it. And all the while I'm thinking, dang, there's that same tree again. And so we're walking in circles, and the sun is getting lower. And I'm starting to get kind of nervous, because this was supposed to be an afternoon hike, not a camping trip. If we had brought camping gear and we had all that, no sweat. We could have made a little camping spot, and no big deal. We would have found our way out in the morning, but we didn't have any of that. So I'm starting to get a little nervous, because you know there's this sense that I'm a little bit lost, and then there's a sense that I'm really lost. And really lost means I got no clue how to get out of here. So I was starting to get pretty nervous about it. And then what we realized was this route that we're trying to trace to find our way back, it's not working. So now we have another option. we got to forge into some very unknown, unprecedented terrain to see if we can get back to the path we want to be on. The risk of that is you get on the unprecedented terrain, you get more lost than the lostness that we're already experiencing. But we began to realize I think that's our only choice. So I'm starting to think about directions, where's the sun now, what time, it didn't have a watch on, I know, I know, it's not very good outdoorsmanship. And so finally, finally, after being pretty nervous about it, we found this little mark on a tree that was the path that we needed to be on. Sun was really low on the sky, but the temperature had dropped 15 degrees from the time we started to get lost to the time we got found. That little mark on the tree, you know what the mark on the tree said? I'm the way home. I was choosing all kinds of options. I was going every direction I wanted to go. And every one of them was producing greater anxiety and fear. And I think you get the point. Once you find the singular, clear direction that says this is the path, the relief and the peace of mind is enormous. Jesus is saying to the disciples, this is the singular, true direction in all the wanderings and challenges of life. So what is truth? Truth is a hard thing to determine in a culture like ours that has confused the dignity of the individual with the supremacy of the individual. It's a really important distinction, and it's a bad mistake to make. Human beings are given beautiful dignity as we see them rendered in the scriptures as God has created us. But in our culture, we've taken given the dignity of human beings to creating the supremacy of the individual. And this is a mistake. And that cultural air that we live in, it shapes the way we reason. It shapes the way we think. It shapes our, ed- our educational paradigms. And so if we're going to question Christianity because it seems cultural, then we have to question the ways we think because that too is cultural. And we live in a culture that has taken the dignity of the individual to an extreme that's not a good place, which is the supremacy of the individual. But truth is important. It matters a lot. Oz Guinness said, truth matters supremely because in the end, there's no humanness or freedom without it. In fact, truth is humanness and freedom. The way to a good life and a free life lies in knowing what is true and learning to live in that truth. No concept in its place is more essential to the seeker. So now we get to the next question about truth. What is truth but truth in your life? The question of truth is the question each of us has to address in our own lives. Jesus frequently said to people, who does everybody say that I am? But then he never left it there. He always said to people, but who do you say that I am? And this is the question now. When Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I remember this confrontation so clearly when I was a college student. And it wasn't because someone was teaching me. I'm sitting in my dorm room reading the Bible, and I remember the confrontation so clearly. The question ultimately is not who does everybody else say that I am, and what about all the other people? The question ultimately becomes very personal, who do you say? that I am. Years ago, I was talking with a guy in our church who uh, moved a number of years ago, doesn't live in Richmond anymore, and he was on a faith journey and a search. And he was also happened to be in a time of his life where he was on a job search. So we would get together, and I was trying to support him and encourage him as he was in this tough time in his life. So lo and behold, we finally got together, and he wanted to tell me that he'd gotten this great job offer, and he was really excited and really relieved. So we had a wonderful conversation about that. And then we turned the conversation to questions about his spiritual seeking and his spiritual journey. And he said to me, I've come to the place where I do think that Jesus is true, but I can't accept him. And I said, why not? And he said, because this news is so good. And there's so many millions and millions of people around the world who have never heard it. How can I accept this good news if millions and millions of other people have never heard it? And I said, well, then you better not accept your job offer either because millions and millions and millions of people don't have the economic opportunity that this job is going to offer you. So if that's a true altruism, I really appreciate the altruism, but I think the reasoning is inconsistent because most of us have accepted jobs that pay us well, and on a world scale, it puts us in a different league than most people in the world. So the question ultimately becomes, who do you say that I am? And here, remarkably, with Jesus, our intellectual paradigms are getting stretched and changed because the question, what is truth and where is truth and how do we get there, moves from ideas to a person. And this is a tough conversion for us to make. Jesus is saying all of those conversations and questions about what is truth and where is truth and how do I get there is me. The answer is me this is not the way we think the way we think is that we're going to construct an argument on philosophical platforms and then we're going to build the ideas to an intellectual commitment but ultimately what Jesus is saying is it's a personal commitment because the answer to the question of what is truth and where is truth and how do we find it is no longer a what but a who And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So this question now brings us a confrontation of lordship. And here's where the rubber hits the road. A confrontation of lordship. Jesus Christ saying to me, David, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The reality of the fact is my protests with him are saying, no, I am. Jesus saying I'm the way, the truth, and the life is a lordship confrontation. It's a question of who he is and who I am. It's Jesus saying, I am Lord, when all of us are wanting to say, no, no, Jesus, I am Lord. I am Lord of my life. And Jesus coming into our lives with these words is saying, no, I am Lord of your life. That's a very difficult concept to grasp in a culture that has given supremacy to individualism. Because in the American mindset, the cultural way that I've been taught to think, I am supreme. I'm an individual. I hold all the rights to my life. Biblically speaking, that's not true. It's not the way many people think around the world today, but it is a distinctly Western paradigm and a distinctly American paradigm of thinking. This is a lordship meeting. When Jesus says to the disciples, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, this is a lordship meeting. Now remember his motive. His motive was to comfort them. They're concerned. They're nervous. They don't know if their life is on the right track. Have they hooked their wagon to the wrong guy? He says, no, you haven't. Take comfort. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Motives matter. Motives are really significant. A beautiful thing can become a bad thing if the motive is skewed. A kiss is a beautiful thing. But when Judas uses it out of the motive to betray Jesus, a kiss is an awful thing. Here Jesus is making a statement, and yes, it does have exclusive ramifications. The motive of the statement is not to be condemning, it's to be comforting. And the motive makes a huge difference in the conversation. This is a lordship meeting. But here's the challenge in the American mindset. Every one of us has been taught that I am a distinctly supreme individual and I have all the rights to myself. In a lordship confrontation, here's where the rubber hits the road, for sure. Most of us have some combination of factors or some specific thing in our lives or our hearts that is the thing we're holding on to most when we're holding on to the rights to ourselves. For some of us, it's money, my pursuit of money, my identity in money, my desire for money, my pursuits of it. For some of us, it's sex and sexuality, my sexual identity, my sexual practices, and how this plays into my sense of self. For others, it's things like social standing, my position in a community, or even social media standing and how many followers I've got. For many others, and for me, it was intellectual standing. These are the types of things that we tend to hold on to to say, this is who I am, and Jesus, I'm not relinquishing this because this is the supremacy of my identity. But here's what I've come to know. Any other Lord over Jesus, at the very least, will create anxious lives for us At the most, they'll create bondage and even death in our lives. And Jesus knows this. Jesus knows this, and this is why he would seek to free us from those anxieties and those bondages by telling us the truth. And Jesus would also free us by helping us realize that thing or those things you're holding on to, whether it's your money or your sexuality or your social standing or your intellectual positioning, those are not you those are your little partialities in life. For you to hold on to that thing and say, this is my affront that Jesus is dealing with, is ultimately for me to say, that is me. I am money. Do you want your life to be reducing you to be an object that says you are money? Or we hold on to, in our day, sex and sexuality. I am sex. Do we really want to be objectified, to be made beings where we are sex and sex is us? Sex is a beautiful gift, but when we take it to become the supremacy of our identity, we are missing, and Jesus confronting in the lordship question, it's a challenging confrontation. But Jesus knows that any other lord will at least create anxiety at worst bondage and death in our lives. You see, what Jesus is now doing is helping us see that his love plus his lordship is where our new lives are. His love plus his lordship. Many of us have embraced his love, but never his lordship. And we wonder why we don't experience this rich, full life in Jesus that we hear people talk about. The church has wrestled with this for centuries. Many churches have talked about his lordship, but they sacrifice his love. Many churches focus on his love, but they sacrifice his lordship. One without the other will not give us that new life for which our souls are hungry. So here's what we begin to realize. If my identity has been intellect, money, sex, you name it, my opposition to Jesus is emotional more than it is intellectual, even for intellectuals because the emotional challenge is what if your intellect is not supreme and that's an emotional challenge if my intellect is not supreme this is very upsetting to me if my money is not supreme if my sex is not supreme if my social standing is not supreme it's very upsetting to me that's an emotional upsetness and here we begin to realize that most of the time When we come to the lordship confrontation with Jesus, our challenges are emotional. Josh McDowell, famous Christian writer, said, the truth that Christ was God's son penetrated deep into my soul. I could no longer reject the reality of Christ and be intellectually honest with myself. The impact of that realization was truly a defining moment for me. I now recognize that I wasn't rejecting Christ for any intellectual reason but for emotional reasons. I was slowly coming to grips with my rebellion and rejection of Christianity. I began to see that my life of sin was standing between me and a loving God who had sent his son to die in my place. One of the surprising things about Jesus is when he's looking for followers, he's not looking for how many, he's looking for devoted followers. It's very contrary to our culture. In our culture, it's how many followers do you have? For Jesus, his focus wasn't on how many. It was on true devotion because this is where the life and the love and the lordship of Jesus lead us to the new life that we're hungry for. Jeremiah 6 says it this way. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. But you said, we will not walk in it. When we are truly home, home in the fullness of what we're talking about here, home with the Father, our every longing is filled. And these things that we've been holding on to, our money, our sex, our social standing, our intellect, will be proven to be so minusculely small by comparison to the grandeur of God's love. But we will hold on to these minusculely small things by comparison because they're all we know when we cling to the rights to ourselves. I remember it so well. There's a scene in The Silver Chair, one of C.S. Lewis's books in The Chronicles of Narnia, where a young girl named Jill is ravenously thirsty. And she finally comes from a clearing into the woods, and she sees this crystal clear stream that she can drink from and have her thirst assuaged. But there's this big lion in the grass between her and the stream. If you know the books, the lion is Aslan, the Jesus figure in the books. So she's desperate for the water, and the lion is between her and the water. And she says to the lion, if I come to the water to drink, will you let me pass? Will you let me pass without harming me or interacting with me? He makes no such promise to her. She says, I feel threatened by you. And she says, if you won't let me pass without promising me that you won't make my life hard, then I will go find another stream. And the lion says to her, there is no other stream. This is what it's like when we come to meet Jesus truly in our lives. It is a crisis. And I am so sympathetic to people who are in places where they're wrestling with the crisis. It's a challenge to our hearts and to our souls. It's been said that we spend the first half of our lives trying to get away from home and the second half trying to find our way back. And here is Jesus leading the disciples to know where home is and how to get there. But the how is no longer a road the way we think of it. The how is a hymn, and the hymn is Jesus. Coming home demands that we grow up to truth and to repentance and to intimacy. It's beautiful, it's joyful, but it's not a game. And coming home demands that we grow up to truth and repentance and to intimacy. Eugene Peterson said, when we listen, really listen to the words of Jesus, we know that they are for us and that this life has deep, eternal significance. And we are delighted. But we also realize that it is going to demand that we grow up, that we be fully human before God. The journey to truth is the journey home because God is truth and God is the home that our hearts are longing for. So Isaiah said, whether you turn to the right or the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. So I'll close by mentioning last week, or two weeks ago, I mentioned if you listened in, that our family had gathered to be with my mom. She was in her last days. We went up to Boston to be with her. We surrounded her bed and we had beautiful times together. By Wednesday of that week, she said, David, let's make some phone calls. It was absolutely clear to me that she was calling people to say goodbye. And so I said, who do you want to call, Mom? And I'll tell you this personal. She said, let's call Pete (laughs) Boell. So I'm holding my phone on speaker, and Mom, with very little energy, wants to dial Pete Boell. We had a beautiful moment on the phone. The next day, our daughter Laura decided she was going to fly from California Thursday night, arrive early Friday morning. My mom didn't know it at the time. Thursday morning, my mom said, let's call Truck, which is the, the nickname for her brother. So I dialed truck, and mom says hello to truck. They chat for a few minutes, and mom says to truck, truck, today's my last day. And I looked at mom, and I said, today can't be your last day. She said, why not? I said, because Laura's coming overnight tonight. She's going to be here tomorrow morning. So I said, truck, hold on a minute. So I said, mom, today can't be your last day. She said, why? And I said, because Laura's coming tomorrow. You need to hold on at least till tomorrow to see Laura. She said, okay, so if today's not my last day, when should I go? <laughs> so strange. It's like when the minister becomes the travel agent to usher someone home. <laughs> so I said, well, Mom, uh, you know my, my mind's spinning. I said, Mom, you've always loved romance, Valentine's Day is in 10 days, and you can go home and you'll see Dad on Valentine's Day. She said, no, too long, Sooner. And I said, well, how about Sunday? She said, why Sunday? I said, Sunday is the day the church gathers to worship and celebrates and recognizes the resurrection. She looked at me and she said, Sunday it is. Our daughter arrived Friday morning. Mom rallied. They talked. It was beautiful. Finally, Saturday afternoon, I flew back home, my sister and I talking about arrangements and saying it's, you know, okay to go because sometimes there does become a little bit of a hard-to-read line between being a companion and being on death watch. And so I came back on Saturday night. I texted my sister Sunday morning at 7 before I came up to preach two weeks ago, and I said, have you been with Mom? She said, yep, I'm here now. She's still with us. And then at about 2 o'clock, I texted her back, and I said, hey, are you with Mom? My phone rang the second after I hit send on the text, and my sister said, I just walked back in her bedroom, and she's gone right on schedule Sunday, Sunday afternoon. I think about it, and I think she did the long game really well, and it's impacted me. And she's home. She's home to the Father. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you now as people whose internal worlds are so turned around. And so, Lord... We're asking you to sort out our mess, sort out all of that stuff swirling inside of us, help us find the right path. And now, Lord, for any who know that you're speaking to them clearly enough to say today's the day to come home, pray with me. Lord, I know you're speaking to my heart and I confess my sin to you in the ways I've turned away from you. And I ask you to forgive me through Jesus Christ. Come into my life, Jesus, today as Lord and Savior, the way, the truth, and the life. Home. In your name, amen.